Millions of pages have been dedicated to the art of diplomacy over the years and we've had many of those fine chroniclers of statecraft on the show. But there's one very important part of statecraft that tends to get overlooked and that's the art of diplomatic gift-giving. Now, these days, the, the presidents might be pretty tokenistic, lest they be seen as a bribe, but that hasn't always been the case. In the past, gifts have had the potential to make or break an alliance, and sometimes they did just that. The Trojan horse, of course, springs to mind as a particularly brutal example. Paul Brummel is a career diplomat. Paul's currently the British ambassador to the Republic of Latvia. And in Paul's spare time, he's been researching this peculiar aspect of history. His book is appropriately titled Diplomatic Gifts, A History in 50 Presents. And I welcomed him to the program all the way from Latvia. It's lo lovely to be with you, Philip. Did you have a nasty experience with the diplomatic present, Paul? Is that how the book came about? <laughs> no, not 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 really. I've 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 received some one or two quite strange diplomatic gifts in my in my time. I think uh, the the strangest probably having been a, a live goat, which I was was given once when ambassador in in Turkmenistan. Um, but but generally speaking, I think the uh, my experience has been rather rather like. The way you, you you started out that diplomatic gifts these days tend to be quite quite notional things. Usually, a, a visiting minister presenting to his his or her um, opposite number um, cufflinks or a book or something something like that. And I just got the sense that that feels very different to the way diplomatic gifts were were treated um, in the past. You see, from his from from museums from. Uh, from history books that actually diplomatic gifts used to be quite important. So I think what, what spurred me to writing the, writing the book was just thinking a little bit about why that should be. I suddenly have an, a terrible memory of Sadat taking foreign visitors, top-level visitors, into the Cairo Museum and just giving them goodies out of the display racks. Anyway, the, I get the impression from your book that there's a lot of strategy involved in diplomatic gift-giving. Take us behind the scenes. What are some of the factors? I think there's a, there's a French sociologist called Marcel Morse um, writing uh, what is, is really the kind of seminal work on gift exchange right back in 1925. And I think he established the principle that, that gifts above all are about social relationships. And I think that's really important to diplomacy, that Diplomacy needs, uh, in order for diplomacy to function, you need to have a social relationship where the, the visiting envoy is is safe to conduct business, uh, and and so coming with a gift is is a means of pre uh, means of of generating that kind of relationship. But gifts do a lot more than 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 just form a kind of bedrock of social relationships. So they can be about authority. Um, a good example is the uh, the Chinese Empire in the in the 18th century. We had a, a, a mission uh, led by George McCartney went to China in 1793, and the aim of that was to to open up China for for British trade. And of course, that that 
mission failed completely because McCartney didn't really understand what what was happening and or, or, or how he was being regarded by the the King Qinglong Emperor and and for the Emperor he he wanted to show this great largesse show the power of the the Chinese Empire through the use of diplomatic gifts and then in in kind of modern days diplomatic gifts can be can be used as a sort of soft power so so countries will typically give a, give a lot of thought to presenting gifts which kind of showcase what the, what they're about. Fidel Castro, the, the, the Cuban president, famously used um, diplomatic gifts of, of cigars, his own brand of Cahiba cigars. And that was partly about sort of giving giving kind of personal connection from him to the recipient. But it was also about showcasing Cuba as, as a cigar manufacturer in the face of lots of competition from Well, Paul, from as, as we both remember, when, you know, Cuba was sort of pushed aside, the, the idea of a Cuban cigar became immensely attractive. There was a sort of a, a criminal underworld selling Cuban <laughs> cigars in the U.S., well, there's the there's the famous famous story. I'm not I'm not sure if it's an apocryphal story or, or, or not, but I think it was it was um, told by somebody very close to him, to the, to the late uh, President Kennedy, that, that actually he did he did go out, send his send his staff out to the shops, and order a large consignment of his favoured Cuban Petit Tupman cigars just before um, putting putting into place the the sanctions legislation. I've been addicted to ancient Egypt all my long life and I understand that uh, one of the first diplomatic visit gifts dates back to Akhenaten. That's right. I mean, there's there's a famous um, archaeological find which was called the Amarna Letters, which is this huge collection of, effectively, it was very early diplomatic correspondence dating back to the 14th century uh, BCE between uh, the Egyptian pharaohs and the uh, the big kings of of, of the uh, the ancient world. And what's fascinating about this correspondence is that it's absolutely full of diplomatic gifts that they're really at the centre of the exchanges between the, the the powers of the day, and and the rulers really don't hold back. I mean, they absolutely sort of spell out in these letters exactly <laughs> what diplomatic gifts they want from from the other the other powers. They all want they all want gold from from Egypt, particularly apart from I think one Babylonian ruler who very very curiously in one letter says he what he really wants from the pharaoh is a stuffed animal. <laughs> um, and they, they they also don't hold back when they what they get is not what they were expecting. And and in in my book, the example I focus on is uh, the ruler of uh, King Tushratta of Mitanni, who um, asks for two gold statues from the pharaoh, and he gets two statues, and he writes back furiously that what he got back were two gold plated statues, and he'd definitely been promised <laughs> solid gold. Well, talking about stuffed animals takes us to the Trojan horse, which. Uh, <laughs> taught us never to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I want to ask you about another ancient diplomatic gift that may have been given to Alexander the Great as a taunt. Oh yes, this was the this was a gift um, when Alexander was kind of menacing 
Persia and the, the, the ruler, the Achaemenid ruler at the time was, was Darius III, who was considered in, in the day, you know, much more sort of older, much more kind of senior ruler against this, this young sort of Greek upstart. Uh, and Darius III gives Alexander a gift, uh, so the story goes, of a whip, a ball and a chest of gold. And this is, this is a gift intended as a tort, you know, the whip whip to to show that he needs discipline uh, the ball because he's a little child so all he can do is sort of play ball with the other children around and the chest of gold so you know so that his troops have the money they need to sort of get back to Greece and stop bothering him in Persia and and so Ale- Alexander sort of receiving this completely subverts the meaning of it in what sense? And, and rallies his troops by saying, well, this gift, well, he says, well, this gift shows, this whip means that I'm going to thrash the Darius and his <laughs> forces. Uh, the ball is a symbol of the globe that's showing that, that our empire is going to stretch around the whole world. And look at the gold, the Darius is already paying us tribute. Uh, so he, he subverts Darius completely and goes on to, 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 to conquer, the, conquer the empire. Paul, is, the, is, this story, <laughs> is this story authenticated or perhaps apocryphal? Oh, I think it's completely made up. It, it's it's found in something called the Alexander Romance, which uh, is you know basically sort of lords uh, Alexander through all sorts of improbable tales. So, I, I sadly I don't think it's got any foundation in in truth at all. <laughs> though, 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 really a really kind of weird thing is it turns up again uh, the same story but with different a different cast list in Shakespeare in Henry V. So the, the the Dauphin of France um, sends an ambassador to Henry V with a with a whole load of tennis balls. You know the idea <laughs> being that Henry V is this child and just just play can only play tennis. And Henry V sort of completely subverts the meaning and says, "No, these tennis balls are cannon balls, and that's to show how we're going to destroy you, French." Well, from. The stuffed uh, Trojan horse, let's go to unstuffed animals, and there's a ray of them given as gifts throughout your book. Elephants, rhinoceroses, giraffes, pandas, and at one point, beavers make an appearance. Why were beavers considered an appropriate diplomatic present? Yeah, so as, as you say, exotic animals are, have really been favoured diplomatic gifts for, for many, many centuries. So you know, the Abbasid ruler gave Charlemagne an, an elephant at uh, the, the end of the 8th century, um, and very right up to the present day where China very frequently uses a kind of panda diplomacy as a, as a gift gift-giving strategy. Um, but beavers are quite an unusual gift, diplomatic gift. They, they were quite prominent at, at various times in history, but not as unlike the other exotic animals. They were not really there to be enjoyed as living creatures. And I think uh, sooner after receipt, I, I fear the poor beavers would have been no longer. The, the attraction was, was partly about the fur. It's, it's partly about meat and, and, and because particularly in medieval times, there was a really curious feature of beaver meat because it was considered, because the tail particularly was looked quite scaly, um, it was considered as fish, so it could be eaten during Lent. So, <laughs> so beaver tail was, it was a great sort of uh, delicacy in, in, at the time. Um, but, but the real attraction was a thing called castoreum, which was this oily secretion um, produced from a gland near the beaver's anus, which was uh, used in all sorts of ways, but particularly in medieval times for medicine. So well, that's how, how dare, how dare <laughs> the Canadians give a 
beavers to our own beloved Queen Elizabeth? Well, this this dates back to the foundation of the Hudson Bay Company, where the the the, the, the company got this this kind of wonderful um, deal, whereby in exchange for monopoly trading rights over territory uh, amounting to some 40% of uh, the present-day territory of Canada, um, all they had to do was provide two beavers and two elk um, whenever a monarch um, went to the territory. And that's only been paid four times. I think the most recent example was, as you say, in in 1970, when when Queen Elizabeth uh, visited Canada. And she, uh, I think for the first time, they'd been given beaver pelts before then. But but at that time, that was the first time that the Queen was presented with two live beavers. I understand they're still swimming in the moat around, uh, (laughs) around one of the palaces. Now, I have to ask you about the Amber Room and its extraordinary story. It was, of course, a gift from the King of Prussia to Peter the Great way back in 1716. And what a story it can tell. Yeah, it's it's now um, I mean regarded perhaps as the most most valuable miss, missing artwork of of all. It's this fabulous amber panelled. Uh, room, which was originally destined by Frederick I of, of Prussia, wanted it to uh, beautify the palace in his new capital of Berlin. But his son was a very frugal character, um, decided he didn't want any of this sort of frippery, uh, and it would be the perfect gift that he needed, a diplomatic gift for, for a visit of Peter the Great of Russia, who was an important ally to Prussia. So he needed to give him something good. So he sort of got Two, killed two birds with one stone, getting rid of this panelled room that he didn't really want, and giving giving Peter the Great something something really good. Um, but it then it, it then adorned uh, the Catherine Palace um, south of St Petersburg um, until the Nazis came in in 1941, uh, and the Nazis took it off the wall and and. Um, took it to Königsberg. And then at the end of the Second World War, there was a big kind of firefight around Königsberg Castle. And nobody knows what what the fate of the Amber Room was. And I think the, the, the Soviet authorities in particular didn't, didn't kind of want to entertain the thought that they might have inadvertently destroyed this fabulous treasure in the firefight. So, well, so the, so the, the, the Amber Room that I remember seeing is a facsimile thereof. It, it it is yeah. There's there's been this great sort of hunt for the amber room everywhere from shipwrecks off the Baltic coast to mine workings in Silesia. But um, you know, eventually, after sort of decades, the uh, the Russian authorities got got you know decided. I think tacitly, we're never going to find this thing. So they spent a, a lot of money and very painstakingly reconstructed the amber room so you can you can go and see it now it was inaugurated i think in 2003 for the 300th anniversary of of st petersburg i'm talking to paul brummel diplomat extraordinaire now paul i'm sitting at a high tech desk but it's completely devoid of any sort of atmospherics tell me about the resolute desk I, th- I think this is one of the most imaginative of all diplomatic gifts. Um, it has its origins in a kind of tragedy of Arctic exploration, which was the expedition of Lord Franklin. Um, uh, he wanted to find the Northwest Passage and sent, uh, went with uh, his ships, uh, disappeared in, in the Arctic, was never heard of uh, or, or 
wasn't wasn't heard of again. Um, and lots of this, you know, outraged kind of Victorian society. There was a great campaign to to find Lord Franklin, and one of the rescue vessels was called the Resolute. Uh, and the Resolute, in the process of, of trying to hunt down a uh, trace of Franklin's expedition, itself got stuck in the Arctic and had to be abandoned. Um, there was then a U.S. whaling vessel and um, came across the uh, the Resolute just um, sailing uh, abandoned in the in the sea and managed to salvage it, took it back to to the U.S. and the American authorities gave the UK back the Resolute as a, as a great diplomatic gift, a hugely successful one. And then what happened was when the the Res- Resolute, you know, its time was was ended and, and it had to be. Uh, decommissioned, uh, Queen Victoria arranged that a desk, a beautiful desk, would be carved and created from the Resolute's timbers, and that she presented to the to the U.S. President. And it's still there now. It's it's the desk right at the heart of the Oval Office, some 140 years later. Uh, so, as a kind of successful diplomatic gift that's still at the heart of, of power in the recipient country, I think it's quite hard to beat. Paul, as you and I talk, a uh, a ship loaded with well over a thousand Porsches is burning and sinking. And that reminds us that Hitler used posh cars to try and encourage a pro-British realist to adopt a more pro-German position. And he certainly wasn't wasting time on Volkswagens. No, I mean one of the most amazing stories is uh, concerns a man called Bupinder Singh, who was the Maharaja of Patiala, a princely state in in then kind of British controlled uh, India, and he was a he was a real character. He was the first. Uh, first captain of an Indian cricket team to tour England, but he was also, you know, had very lavish tastes and he commissioned for himself something called the Patiala Necklace with 3,000 diamonds. Um, In the mid-1930s, he went on a tour of Europe and he put in for a courtesy call on Hitler. And they had a meeting and seemed to have hit it off because they then had a a range of meetings over successive days, as a result of which uh, Hitler gave the Maharaja this absolutely immense uh, car, this um, Maybach Zeppelin. It was five and a half metres long. It had searchlights over the grille so that uh, which showed whether the Maharaja or Maharani were, were in the car at the time. So it was a truly sort of fabulous thing. And, and what Hitler seems to have wanted, obviously, was, was um, for Patiala to declare itself neutral in, in, in the coming hostilities, of which he was completely unsuccessful. It was a very, you know, Patiara immediately, as the whole of India, sided, sided, with, the, sided with the British. Um, but, uh, and, and when the, car, when the car arrived, I think it was just a huge embarrassment. So it was sort of consigned to, the, consigned to a garage in Patiala. It was never driven at all. And, and, and I think it was the Maharaja kind of quietly gifted it on to, to somebody else. You've got so many wonderful stories and we haven't got time to tell them. Even we can only hint at the story about Nixon's gifts of moon rock. <laughs> Uh, and, of course, um, our own former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, liked to gift R.M. Williams boots. Absolutely. I, th- I think R.M. Williams boots, they've, they've been favoured almost kind of across the political spectrum in Australia. So, so Kevin Rudd and both Tony Abbott have both 
both use them quite frequently in their diplomatic gifting. And I think that's, um, that's because, I mean, Australia is actually one of the few countries to be very public about its diplomatic gifting strat- strategy. You can, you can go online to the website of the Australian uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and see the diplomatic gifting guidelines. And they really, they're very interesting because they really kind of dissuade Australian officials from giving gifts. They emphasise right at the outset that Australia is not a gift-giving country. Uh, they impose quite strict limits on the uh, value of gifts gifts that, that can be given. So gift giving has always been distinguished between a gift and a bribe, but uh, a more recent dilemma must be to distinguish between a gift and aid. Yeah, it's, aid is, is, very, is very interesting. One, one, one thing that is quite palpable is the way that a lot of, uh, a lot of donors, particularly um, OECD donors, are very reluctant to use the language of gifts when talking about aid. Indeed, the, the term aid is increasingly out of favour, replaced by kind of development cooperation. People talk less about donor and recipient than about development partners. And I think uh, my argument in, in the book is that that actually is understandable if you, if you look back at the work of Marcel Mauss on gift-giving, where... He think he identifies what's really important with a gift is to reciprocate it. If you if you don't give something back, then it's a pure gift, and the risk of pure gifts is that it it, it can develop a a kind of culture of humiliation and and dependence. Paul, you've given a gift to the program. Unfortunately, you are out of time. Paul Brummel, diplomat, writer, his new book is Diplomatic Gifts, A History in 50 Presents, published by Hearst. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.